0: Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in Conversation With on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Uh, Barry, so great to be able to catch up with you. Um, Obviously, we've just wrapped up the first quarter of 2021. Um, The four indices in the United States look to show some good performance. Of course, there's still the debate going on in terms of where we go from here, which we'll get to in this longer formatted conversation. Um, so certainly a lot to discuss, but I, I first actually want to get your take and your perspective for our viewers um, as it relates to this massive liquidation that really started about a week ago of this family office, $30 billion or so, obviously leveraged. Um, and our viewers should understand that you're know you uh, you a veteran on Wall Street. Um, You've seen the financial crisis and many other uh, moves in the past. So, with a week now gone by almost, um, what's your takeaway here?
1: From a a broad sort of macro perspective, um, I think that there is still skepticism about what I believe is a very serious regime change that is not just a cyclical. Dynamic, but is likely to be more of a secular dynamic. And what I'm referring to specifically is reflation and uh, deglobalization. And so, if you think about the positions that were held by this family office, there were Chinese internet companies, there were media companies. Uh, This is none of the stuff that I hold or I've been recommending, I'm in the the reflation thesis, industrials, financials, uh, even within tech. It's got to be the cyclical parts of tech. So, semis and semi cap equipment, a little bit of software because there'll be a recovery there. But this, the whole positions looked like they were just in the wrong spot for not only what is happening. In the early stages the cyclical part of the recovery but what's likely to happen through the cycle and it's not all that that different than what happened to the hedge fund back in January with the GameStop fiasco if you think about <clears throat> that um, dynamic that was the low quality part of the rally which is the same thing that happened in 2003 when internet companies with very challenged business models rallied ferociously in early 2003. And I recall a very big $10 billion hedge fund that had gotten it right all the way down, ended up folding up shop as a consequence of that sharp short covering rally. 2009 was similar. The lower quality financials rallied more strongly. But if you think again about those positions, challenged bricks and mortar retailers, um, mall REITs like Mace Rich, a movie theater company, you know, a... um, the, the most challenged or leverage of the major U.S. airlines. So all those positions were offsides and they were vulnerable, to be sure, this broader trend of reflation. Um, you know, beyond that, I suppose you could trace this, you know, in a maybe even third order way to all of the liquidity that's been, been provided by the Fed and the banking system being so desperate to find ways to lend money that you know, prime brokerage businesses in some of the um, second-tier shops were just overly aggressive and lent a bunch of money to the uh, family office that shouldn't have gotten that amount of leverage. I mean, to have you know six to eight turns of leverage on fifty to hundred vol stocks just seems crazy. Um, I called it amateur hour on the street on on CNBC actually. <laughs> It's a little pejorative. I tend not to be that way, but, it you know, these were sort of bad positions. So, um you know, but again, this is what happens early cycle where people don't recognize these regime changes. We have V-shaped recoveries in the stock market, almost every business cycle, but that, you know, there are different drivers of the cycle and secular winners each and every cycle. And I think, this recognition that tech may not be the big winner this go around—it's not going to be about software. That whole Asia, you know, miracle story is ending, and um, I think that that was, you know, that was a big part of what happened.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it, it's interesting when you know you're obviously taking a look at the the stocks that they were offside on, and obviously they're not the areas that you would be investing in. But I think for you know our viewers and in some newer participants in the equity markets I think they find it hard to believe that a family office can be five or six time levered um, and they also are trying to understand how did it get unnoticed and and I think that's one of the areas in the in the market in the in the news that people are trying to understand in terms of um, you know, because I guess you're a family office, you don't necessarily have to report your sizable holdings. Um, there's also, of course, talks that they used swaps. Maybe you can kind of just describe a little bit about what that means, uh, as to why we didn't see this, and and the reason why that's maybe a little bit important is because there's also concern that are there more of these scenarios out there?
1: Well, I, I, th- I suspect there are. Um, there are definitely some investors with an undue amount of leverage. You know, I alluded to that a little bit earlier when the fed has pushed or contributed to negative real interest rates, you know, 2% on um, the front end part of the curve, right? Two year real rates are negative 257 basis points. I'm glancing at my, my Bloomberg screen, (laughs) you know, that, that, that kind of negative real interest rate does, um, you know, create an incentive for the street to try and put that money to work any way they can. I mean, you've seen things like lending against cryptocurrency start to proliferate as well, anywhere where you can get a significantly positive return. Um, So that, you know, that's I think that's part of the story for sure. Using swaps um, for long short equities as a way of getting around the 50% more fifty percent margin requirement has been with us since the nineties. Um, I'm not sure how that continues to slip through the cracks. <clears throat> I, you know, I would also, as a sort of a side comment, wonder that everyone who's running a family office must have thought to themselves over the last week or two, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, there's going to be increased scrutiny because they had gotten some leeway from recording reporting requirements and the like. So you would have to think that that'll be something the SEC will catch up to over time. Um, You know, so it's, you know, there's definitely cracks in the system. I mean, there were, there was potentially cracks in the system around GameStop as well. It's not clear how much of the open uh, or the shares outstanding had been borrowed, but the number was really high. And, And to this date, I don't, believe that all of the holes in the system in terms of how many shares can actually be rehypothecated, meaning lent out to be shorted. I don't think that was ever really cleaned up. I mean, that was one of the issues uh, we had at Lehman Brothers back in the crisis was there were people that were never really getting locates on the shares. They'd be short. They never really got bought in. Uh, So I don't, you know, I still think that there's some holes in the system that, you know, led to some of these problems. I don't think they're systemic, though. I think that was one of the points around all this is that there's just not, it's not one of those events that's likely to lead to, um, you know, a broader market event. We went we went through the GameStop situation fairly quickly. We went through this one even more quickly. Um, that core economic momentum and um, liquidity in the system at this stage in the cycle is such that it's very unlikely that this will lead to a broad sell off or broader problem um but it was a you know it, it's it's indicative of the way the market's traded since the financial center where volatility in general is lower but we get these specific events the vol of all where you know we get these just really outsized moves for a couple of days and um, and that's likely to continue in part because It was intentional by by the regulators to push a lot of the risk outside of the system. So they tried to push it to money managers, to hedge funds, so that if money is lost, it will be private money that's lost, not the government having to step in and bail out um, taxpayer-supported banks. So they got what they wanted, but we are going to have these episodic, (laughs) crazy incidents. And I think that we just have to accept that. And for most investors, they should view any of these little crazy events as as buying opportunities, if there's a significant broader equity market-related sell-off.
0: Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting, though, and, and pretty amazing, though. You know, when the GameStop uh, scenario happened, and then also, of course, this liquidation, it, it is somewhat reminiscent of what was leading up to. I mean, if you were in the business, like I was, and of course you were during the financial crisis and leading up to it, and of course the Bear Stearns funds that failed. Um, you know, you have to kind of think back and, and wonder if there is systemic risk because the way the leverage is allowed to play out in the structure of the markets in terms of not really knowing where those shares are um, as it relates to what's been going on lately, GameStop and or, you know, probably the um, uh, the, the family office that just uh, had the margin call. But, but also if you think going back to the financial crisis, uh, a lot of the big banks just did not know where their counterparty risk was—that was the conversation then. But to your point now, with the incredible amount of liquidity in there, it's almost as though the liquidity just stopped the fall—the the falling from from continuing.
1: Right, and and um, you know that liquidity story is part of my broader theme. So f- one of the main elements of that is. The Treasury was maintaining $1.8 trillion in their general account at the Fed Uh, for much of the last year or so. They've begun to draw that down. They actually need to get that to $100 billion by the beginning of August as part of the debt ceiling agreement of 2019. They've already dropped that $1.8 trillion balance down to below a trillion dollars. A lot of that has gone out in checks to individuals. Uh, it's gone into reserves in the banking system. So you've had a nine, almost $900 billion flush of liquidity into the system. In addition, and that's over the course of less than two months, in addition to the $120 billion of liquidity that's getting created by Fed purchases of $80 billion of treasuries and $40 billion of mortgages every month. So with that amount of liquidity in the system, bank capital, as high as it is, Bank leverage as low as it is relative to where we were, you know, back in the uh, in the Bear Stearns Lehman days. It, it's that's why you can't get the tinder from these things. They just cause these episodic little vol mm-hmm. shocks, and then we we move on from there. So, um,
0: interesting. <laughs> it, it, that's amazing, right? The, the fact that we've got the liquidity right now, and that's uh, helping. Prevent fires, essentially. Um, p- picking up your, on your point, though, with respect to the Fed and, and perhaps all the uh, unintended consequences um, and intended consequences. You know, your your most recent report just out um, is it's uh, never different this time, uh, and you do talk a little bit about the uh, U.S. Federal Reserve and and the impact that they will end up having. On financial institutions profitability, can you talk right. a little bit about that? Because there's a lot of people who've been buying into the financials, um, believing that you know it's now their turn to outperform.
1: Right. Well, I, listen. I've been overweight the financial sector. It was um, since the lows, and it was frustrating in the early days. I, I didn't believe they were going to have the kind of credit event that they had the last business cycle. The change in accounting standards um, that forced them to take expected reserve losses over the entire uh, term of the loan meant that they reserved more in the first and second quarter of last year than they did during the entire financial crisis. So to me, it looked like the sector had gotten unduly cheap and the credit cycle wouldn't be nearly as uh, significant as it was last go around. And that's turned out to be the case. It took a rally in interest rates for investors to start getting interested in the group. You know, we're in a tricky spot with that group right now, in part because we're about to start earnings in two weeks' time. I think it's actually two weeks from today when JP Morgan uh, and Citi kicked the the earnings season off. But you're going to see very tepid loan growth this quarter. Uh, You're going to see very high cash assets, which acts as a real drag on profitability. You're not going to see the asset turnover that investors think that they're going to get from the steepening of the yield curve, net interest income, net interest margins are likely to be disappointing, but the credit cycle story will be really good. And so you'll start to see reserve releases and that'll boost profitability, at least in as much as the, you know not having to take these credit uh, charges will boost profitability. But the real issue for the group is, can they get return on equity back above 10%? And that's a very key level. In the 1950s, when we had a very tight regulatory environment, like we did in the 2010s, and we had very similar monetary policy, we had explicit interest rate caps. At the beginning of that um, post-World War II period, 70% of bank credit was invested in treasury securities. It's not that high now, but if you take reserves, cash plus treasuries, the numbers are... Very big and, and loan to deposit ratios have fallen. So prior when the Trump administration went through their regulatory uh reform and loosening of the financial sector, you saw a return on, and this started in mid-2017. By the end of 2018, return on assets were back to where they were pre-crisis. Return on equity wasn't, but it got to 12%. So it got through that 10% level. It was never going to get back to 20 because. There's not as much leverage in the system. Nevertheless, getting above 10 was key. At 10, they generally trade about at book value. Above 10, they start to trade at a premium to book, not just at a linear rate, but an exponential rate because they really do start to build capital quickly. Um, It's not clear to me with this level of cash and reserves and the Fed not continuing the exemption for uh, treasuries and cash in the supplementary leverage ratio, this is the total amount of leverage they can have. Without that, they may struggle and have you know, fairly weak profitability, not get back to that 10% ROE. Now, that won't be evident this quarter, but it could become evident over the next couple. And it really is, is the big hurdle for that sector to work through the cycle, not just for a cyclical recovery. And so that's um for me, those that's the big issue in, in in that sector. And the Fed is loosening the buyback rules. So I don't think I would be selling the sector right here because even if I'm right about the way fundamentals unfold in earnings season, when earnings season's done, they'll probably be in there buying their own stocks. That should, you know, provide some support. But it is a it is going to be an interesting sector to see how that develops over the course of the next couple of quarters.
0: But if i'm also hearing you correctly um and i've heard this from a fixed income investor as well that because the fed has so much liquidity they're crowding out the lending business of the banks is that true is it accurate
1: uh yes thank you for for helping me along with this point (laughs) because you know if there's a if there's a, a exorbitant amount of cash on balance sheets as there currently is um we're, we're going to get close to $2 trillion in bank cash above where we were a year ago, and the numbers were already building. Um, that And they reached those leverage ratios. They weren't there before the Fed made this decision, but they could get to that level fairly quickly. Um, and there's no way for them to really dispose of these reserves. I mean, Bank America, there's been reports about companies like Bank America turning away deposits, large-scale deposits, not wanting to take things like escrow accounts um, so that they don't have all that cash because that could uh, impair their ability to lend to the private sector. That's already evident, by the way, in the one real strong source of of demand for credit right now, which is the housing market. The big banks have been pushed out of lending um, other than doing Fannie or Freddie related loans, securitizing them and selling them to Fannie and Freddie because the capital charge on Issuing a mortgage and holding it on balance sheet is so prohibitive. But J.P. will do a little bit of it. Wells Fargo will try and do it. Um, But those capital charges are so hard or high relative to treasuries, which are basically zero capital charge, that you just crowd out private sector lending. And so to me, that's not really a good outcome that the lending for the mortgage market, for the housing market comes almost entirely from the government and the private sector doesn't participate in that um,
0: just the- Barry, I I think that's almost astonishing you know for people to really understand that that it's the government that is really responsible for the lending of the housing market versus the private sector is you know especially since what do we learn really from the financial crisis that you know you you I think you still want the private sector to be very involved into our point earlier in terms of um, just the margin calls of the, the banks wanted that to be more on the private sector. I mean, sorry, the government wants that to be more in the private sector. You, you'd almost think that that should be the same from the housing market. I, I just it does. It, I think that not everybody's really understanding this, you know, in terms of the p- potential risks. I mean, but it's the government, they can always come in and save the day, I suppose, as they do. But at the same time, too, you know, if you own the, the banks, um, it's a it's a whole business line that that they don't get to participate in anymore. So when everybody's always expecting the banks to show increasing profit, everything should be set up so well for these banks to do so. And to your point is the return on equity number that the stock market cares about. Um, if they can't achieve that, I mean, these you know, these stocks are going to be they're not going anywhere, really.
1: Yeah, the, um, the failure to do, you know, GSE reform, reform Fannie or Freddie, uh, the FHA was the original subprime lender. They got pushed out by the subprime subprime originators back in the 2000s. They are the subprime originator. So, you know, the government um, really does control a flow of credit to the housing market. And um, I, I, I just, for the life of me, don't understand why, They wouldn't lower the conforming loan limits and just keep gradually pushing it down and try and bring more and more private capital into the market. But um, Mm.
0: uh, we are where we are. That's not the way it's unfolded.
1: (laughs) And you just hear, you know, and, and listen. I mean, what's going on more broadly, you know, in our political system is is consistent with this, right? I mean, the Biden Build Back Better plan was announced yesterday, and they went from originally talking about. 3 trillion in spending uh, and a trillion in tax hikes to 4 trillion in lending and 3.5 trillion in tax hikes. And if you just think about that broadly, that is a giant transfer from the private sector to the public sector. Um, I wouldn't think it would be positive for productivity over time, but this is this is where we're at. It's one of the things that the pandemic has done, is ushered in. Uh, what I would consider to be the most progressive government since LBJ or the Johnson administration. And so, you know, um, at the at present, policymakers believe government is the source of good and um, controlling the housing market and um, mm-hmm. infrastructure spending and all is, is the direction that we're headed for now.
0: Mm-hmm. For, for now. Um, and just on that point, I, I let's just pick up on the uh, Biden um, plan, you know, do you think that this will get passed in terms of understanding Washington right now? It doesn't seem as though it's going to be having a lot of Republican support and they've got the moderate Democrats that they also have to get on side. So, you know, we're we're going to talk about, you know, the back half of 2021, but kind of stepping back a bit and looking out maybe to 2022. I mean, how do you think this actually plays out? Will that get passed?
1: Well, they clearly... um had an increased level of confidence in their ability to get something big done following getting the $1.9 trillion in the American Rescue Plan. Now, that American Rescue Plan was not, it was only roughly half pandemic relief. And this is the, not just my assessment of it, but the Congressional Budget Office said roughly $900 billion is pandemic relief. And the other trillion is an expansion of the social safety net. Um, This is much the same The journal did a pretty good job today describing the infrastructure spending. It was about one third core infrastructure roads and ports, uh, airports and things like that. And the other um, two thirds was building up the green energy agenda, which will develop over time. And so you've you've got pressure on the Biden administration from all sides on this. The Business Roundtable and Chamber of Commerce came out and said they didn't support it and Remember who funds congressional campaigns, right? Um, these are the big contributors. So they're going to have a fight on their hands on that side. The, um, the tax policy part of this is a we went from being the one remaining country with a worldwide taxation system that is an attempt to tax U.S. corporations on their global profits to moving towards a territorial system, which much of the rest of the world has already done. UK was one of the last back in 2009 to go that route. Um, We're trying to go back and we're trying to um, uh, lead the world to a higher global minimum tax rate of 21% when even the OECD proposals are more like 12. So, Hmm. you know, there's, there's a a lot of um, stuff in this tax plan that will, potentially um, impair capital spending, uh, potentially make the U.S. a much less attractive destination. The Tax Foundation estimates we were the 35th or 36th um, highest tax burden from a corporate tax perspective or worst destination for global capital. Uh, The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act moved us to the middle of the pack, something like 17. The Biden plan puts us Below where we used to be, and part of that's because global tax corporate tax rates continue to fall. They've even falling in places like France, right? So um, this is uh, not a not a great plan from a corporate tax perspective uh, at all. But I think there'll be serious pushback. I mean, these are the big pockets, the people with the money to lobby Congress, and um, I think they're going to struggle to get uh, the plan done in the way that they want to do it. Listen, I, I think there is an argument if you want to spend money on ports and airports and roads to borrow that money. I, I don't think there was a ar- ar- big argument to borrow another trillion dollars to expand the social safety net. And you already see how it's slowing the recovery in the labor market, the, some of the um, expansion of the uh, unemployment benefits and the like. But there may be a stronger argument to borrow to build your infrastructure. That's what you're supposed to borrow for is long term capital investment. So that argument's a little, you know, to me, carries a little more water. And that may be what ends up happening is they they don't raise taxes to the extent that they'd like to. um, And they end up borrowing a bit more. So.
0: No, that's interesting especially with rates so low you know why wouldn't they borrow and um you know even perhaps issue government bonds surrounding the plan versus increasing the corporate tax rate um, the, the, the
1: one the one cautionary note on that catherine which is to me one of the most interesting developments in the first quarter of this year was the way we always looked at real interest rates so the non-inflationary component of nominal treasury yields prior to the global financial crisis, is we used that as something of a proxy for the growth outlook, right? You'd see real rates go up after we got a series of strong numbers. If we get a strong payroll number tomorrow, for example, you'd expect at least pre-global financial crisis, you would have thought that would have pushed real rates up. After the global financial crisis, real interest rates became all about monetary policy. The stock of Fed purchases, the flow of Fed purchases, the taper tantrum triggered a huge move in real rates, 150 basis points over the course of eight weeks or so. There were two shocks in 2018 when the Fed was contracting their balance sheet uh, in January of 2018 that led to a and a sell-off. And then again, in September of 18, and that led to the quantitative tightening crash of the fourth quarter of 18. Well, since January 5th, which was the date of this Georgia Senate elections that flipped the Senate and turned it into a blue wave, you've seen a very significant move in real rates, particularly in the part of the curve where the Fed is not participating. So the very long end, 30-year real rates, uh, the Fed average purchase is about six years. And it was almost like you shocked that part of the curve higher. So for me, this was the first time in my, dating myself here, (laughs) 35-plus-year career where I could actually see interest rates and the real rate component of interest rates moving as a consequence of increased government borrowing or treasury supply. So it's obviously those levels are still negative. Um, it's still early in the game, but I do think the market is beginning to show signs that the. US may be reaching its, you know, its limits in how much it can borrow, which has unbelievably fascinating longer term implications. But um, but yeah. we'll see. Um, today, the the Treasury market is actually uh, bull flattening, indicating a lot of skepticism about whether the Biden administration can actually push through this plan in the way it's currently constructed.
0: Why why would we see a flattening in in terms of? Um,
1: because wondering... the market well, two things. One is the market is probably skeptical about the amount of spending they'll actually be able to do, given how much of this is, is uh, green energy related and whether there's a lot of pushback on that from some of the moderates, the Joe Manchin's and all the world that know what that means for his state of West Virginia. Um, and also the um, uh, concerns about the, the tax hikes and what what's the economic implications of that. Um, so when that when it was three billion of spending and one billion of tax hikes, that's a two billion differential. When it's four trillion of spending and three and a half trillion of tax hikes, um, that's only a five hundred billion dollar differential. It just doesn't have the same supply requirements as what they were talking about doing a little while back. I think they may get back to lower tax hikes and you know significant spending. I think they're more likely to get some consensus on spending, not so much the green piece of it, but the core piece of infrastructure spending, they're more, that's the piece they're most likely to get some form of agreement on.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, you know, Barry, when we think about um, inflation and reflation, obviously investors are looking at that in terms of where they wanna be positioned in the market in terms of that pro cyclical bent or tilt to their portfolio. There's that component that we can discuss, but there's also the component in terms of you know if you're a builder, you're in construction or if you're an individual out there with a lower purchasing power. I mean it's pretty interesting that we've seen you know Kimberly Clark uh, announced that they're going to have uh, price increases pretty much across the board, also Smuckers and Hormel. I mean, you're starting to see these companies uh, increase prices because of the increased input costs. And yet at the same time, you know, you'll hear from the US Federal Reserve. And this is what's so confusing for people that that inflation is transitory. And of course, it, it depends in terms of what you're including and not including. But when at the end of the day, I, I think that, you know, we'll either have real inflation and it's going to surprise people or, or we won't. So how do you kind of dovetail the different aspects of inflation and therefore the interest rate environment?
1: I think the idea that this is going to be transitory and we're going to go back to a low or disinflationary environment um, stems from a failure to diagnose where disinflation came from and what was the real source of that over the last three decades. And it's actually very simple. If you decompose CPI or the personal consumption deflator into energy prices core service prices, so non-energy service prices, and core goods prices, what you find is the disinflationary impulse flowed completely through goods prices. And you think, well, why would that be? And the answer is very simple. In 1990, there were 750 billion industrialized workers in the world. By 2010, there were 2 billion and that was the integration of China and the Soviet bloc into the industrialized world. That is a giant labor supply shock that put downward pressure on manufacturing global tradable goods prices. That is unlikely to persist through this decade. And the simple reason for that is uh, we've just had, in addition to the economy, you know, global markets, you um, working into equilibrium over time, unit labor costs in China grew 10 to 15% faster than they did in the US for more than a decade. Uh, Transportation costs have gone up. Relative energy prices are much cheaper here and in Canada than they are uh, in Asia, for example. Uh, But we've had a series of serious, very serious supply shocks. Uh, The Great East Japan earthquake and tsunami in 11. Thai floods in that same year shut down the semiconductor and electronics industry for a couple of months. Um, We went on and then had the Trump trade war. Then we had the pandemic. Uh, You know, a tanker got stuck in the Suez Canal (laughs) last week. Um, And you could see there's a reaction to it already. Intel's getting into the foundry business, investing $20 billion dollars. Uh, in foundries in Arizona. And of course, Taiwan Semi now says, well, we're in for 100 billion, right? But nobody's going to want to have their supply chain stretched all over the world any longer. And so near sourcing and on on sourcing, all those things are going to put, you know, upward pressure or at least mitigate the downward pressure on global goods prices, I think for the the course of the next decade. And so if you think about it from that perspective and say, okay, you know we've, we're going to have very strong uh, readings on inflation for the next quarter, as a you know because the year-on-year comps are so low. The real, more important, longer-term thesis is: is that good source of dis- disinflation is that ending? And I believe the answer is is yes, it is. Um, so yeah, technology will still keep service prices from you know running too hot. But service prices have been running above the Fed's target at three plus percent for decades. That's not, you know, where disinflation came from. It really did come from those goods prices. And and by the way, the the most acute period of that disinflationary shock was in the two to three years after China was admitted to the WTO. So in the early 2000s. Um, Hmm. And even if you look at, you know, I'm throwing deglobalization out there as if the pandemic just triggered it. It didn't. In the and 2000s, China, Korea, Japan, and Taiwan's export growth averaged better than 15% through the, the entirety of that business cycle. In the 2010s, the number was more like 5%. So you'd already had a serious slowing of this globalization trend, and it's likely to be softer still in the 2020s. And you know that should mitigate a lot of that. Um, disinflationary pressure,
0: and, and so the other side of that trade, though, is that you will continue to expect to see deglobalization and onshoring, uh, bringing manufacturing back to one's respective countries, and and maybe almost even having some regional trading relationships. Uh, and you know, interesting as an aside, to take a look at CP with the first transcontinental railway. So I I don't know if we're actually going to get to that, but but bottom line. Um, do you then really see uh, an increase in in pricing expectations for for our viewers at home to be thinking about in terms of you know realistic price expectations
1: well I um, the answer is yes your regional block thesis I think is is spot on <clears throat> that's already happened Germany does that with Poland and the Czech Republic right and 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 um, Back in 2017, I remember meeting with the Mexican ambassador to the US and saying, really, what we're trying to do with the USMCA is have a regional trading block between Canada, US and Mexico so we can compete with China. Um, And I think that's the right way to um, to think about it. Um, Listen, I think the inflationary. Dynamic is going to build slowly. I've drawn the analog with the 1960s. I think it's the right way to to think about it. Uh, JFK was elected in 1960 with an ambitious fiscal and monetary policy agenda. Um, Their big risk or checkpoint was the dollar and gold standard, dollar gold standard, uh, and the fact that we were having gold drained out of the system. But they generally just pushed that aside and said, no, 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 we've got to focus on the domestic agenda. They ran on 5% GDP growth. They expanded fiscal policy, they expanded monetary policy. That um, went into hyperdrive under LBJ with the guns and butter routine. And and for the first five to six years of that business cycle, reflation was really good. We went from averaging something like 8% earnings growth to 15% earnings growth. The PE had gone from seven at the end of World War II to 20. It stayed at 20 um, because growth accelerated. And so all was good. But then eventually inflation got away from us. Nixon took us off the gold standard and inflation, you know, reflation turned into inflation. We're a long way from really worrying about inflation, even with what I've described about deglobalization. You know, China, Germany, Japan, Korea, they all have massive excess goods capacity, they're going to sell product at whatever they can just to meet their fixed costs. So uh, it's going to take a while for those countries to restructure away from mercantilism and prices to really start to rise. I'm merely arguing they won't fall the way they did. And so those inflation pressures will build over time, you know, as it relates to, you know, to housing and the cyclical elements there, that's, you know, that we can circle back and look at the fed and say, Yeah, I'm not sure how long you're really going to want to keep this ultra easy policy in place. Not to mention, when you look at broad measures of labor market slack in this country, um, we are nowhere near uh, having as much slack as we did in 2009 and 2010. We're more like 2016. The job openings rate, the layoff rate, the quits rate, all those various other measures of labor market slack, even the labor force participation rate for prime age women who were really impaired by our teachers unions who wouldn't go back and teach in class. um, That is at the average for last business cycle. It's down from where it was at the peak, but it's it's not nearly where it was in 2009 or 2010. So there's not all that much labor market slack out there. The Fed narrative that we have 9 million uh, fewer jobs than a year ago is really overstates the case for Labor market slack and wage growth, as an aside or in a related note, um, did was falling at this point in 2000 and early 2010. In the early stages of the recovery, it hasn't. It's barely fallen this cycle. Even when you look at measures that account for mix shift, like the Atlanta Fed Wage Tracker, we really haven't had wage disinflation. So I think we're going to find that by the back half of 21. There's not much labor market slack, there's upward pressure on wages, there's upward pressure on housing costs. There's a lot of things that the Fed is going to have to, as Robert Kaplan of the Dallas Fed says, they're going to have to be humble about this because this was not a recession like the global financial crisis. It was pretty much the antithesis of the global financial crisis.
0: So that leads me to a question that gets asked so often now um, in in the press and, uh, and amongst strategists and investors, which is, um, do you think that you know, given what you've said, that we could see some wage inflation, and certainly from a near-term perspective, you know, to your point, prices aren't necessarily going to fall. Maybe we get a bit of an uptick, um, but if in fact the yield curve starts steepening, you know, do we have confidence at all that the Fed will be able to manage the steepening yield curve, the rising interest rate expectations? Number one. And in conjunction with that, with the amount of debt that is being accumulated, do you ever see a Fed that will be okay with rising rates putting downward present value on the current debt that they own? If that makes well, sense.
1: I, I, so here's, here's the way I would, I would think about the Fed and the sequencing of events is that'll get them to talk about talk about tapering at least. Um, so right Right now, or over the last couple of weeks at least, and through the course of this year, what really has primarily, there's been two things going on. One is, I described a little bit earlier, which is the move in real rates related to um, increased treasury supply, 5.3 trillion in deficit financed government spending. That's 25% of GDP. We haven't done anything like this since World War II. And when we did that in World War II, we had explicit interest rate caps. don't have those now. So that is a that is a different dynamic. But inflation break-evens have been rising steadily, right? This is the market implied inflation component of nominal interest rates. Um, the Fed is fine with that right now and will likely be fine with that through the second quarter. They will view increases in measures of inflation and inflation expectations as healthy, part of the recovery, consistent with their new average inflation target mandate. So they will let those rise further. Now, the five-year, five-year forward inflation break even is at 2.43%. Somewhere around three, I suspect there'll be at least regional Fed bank presidents that start a, will start to get a little nervous about that. And somewhere in the third quarter, you'll have at least some of them start talking about talking about tapering. And that would likely then lead to concerns that the Fed will taper their asset purchases, and one of these real rate shocks and risk-off events that could be worth as much as 10% on the equity market. Okay. Every business cycle since World War II, we had one of those at the point when we reached a so-called escape velocity, and the Fed gained enough confidence to normalize policy. Um, last cycle, we had eight, and the, you know it was the end of QE1 and a QE2, so on and so forth. We'll have a series of those this cycle. The first one, I would expect to be sometime in the third quarter. The Mm -hmm. secondary question you asked, though, is uh, will the Fed be able to respond in the way that Janet Yellen said they could, or former New York Fed President Bill Dudley said they would, or Jerome Powell, which is we have the tools to deal with inflation? Well, (laughs) the only issue there is... First of all, if we go back to the 60s and we quote uh, Bill Martin, who was the chairman of the Fed at that time, he said the Fed is independent within the government, not of the government. And the Fed in those days used to coordinate their liquidity injections with treasury auctions to make sure that they could sell that those securities. The, the Fed is an arm of the government, and if we have uh, – debt to GDP over 100%, there's almost no way for them to uh, totally ignore that as part of their process and be able to raise rates 200 basis points in a short period of time. If were they to do so and interest costs were to go back to somewhere around their historical uh, averages, you would crowd out all discretionary spending. Mm-hmm. You know, Back in the 60s, Discretion or mandatory spending, spending on Social Security, and in those days, Medicare and Medicaid were just started in 65, that was roughly 25% of government spending. Now, mandatory spending is more like 65% of government spending. So the Fed could very well find themselves in a place where they're just not able to um, tighten as much as they think they'd like to, because they have to facilitate that government debt. So that's that's a longer term concern. I don't think it's going to be evident in twenty twenty one, but uh, but it, it you know, it's an issue through this business cycle. The mm-hmm. fact is you you can say that the spending is all short term, but the debt's going to linger on. So
0: yeah, I think that's that's a great way to to say it, Barry, in the sense that you know what we're talking about is really, whether it's fiscal policy or monetary policy, um the view is is really and this is around the world you know a, a short termism in terms of like let's just get through this pandemic and do what we need to do to make sure we do that and i guess i sit back there sometimes as a you know obviously you know we can be tactical in our investments and therefore you know maneuver around for sure but my goodness isn't it nice to think about okay well where will we really be in 5 and 10 years out so that we can kind of you know if when we see opportunities Understand exactly why they're an opportunity, and and you know, make that type of investment on the long term front. So, um, but yeah, I hear you. You know, we're we're not there yet. Um, you know, I, I guess one of the other questions I would have, um, you know, as it relates to the discussions out there right now, is well, and, and you picked it up picked up on it, of course. Is it, um, where are we? Are are we at the beginning of a business cycle? Um, if so, what does that really mean from an investment perspective? I hear some people even saying, you know, maybe we're at the beginning, like, like the roaring 20s, which my goodness, I don't think it feels like that to anybody right now, because we're all pretty much at home um, and around, that's around the world. I was talking to some friends in the UK today and they've been under incredible lockdown, but where do you think we are?
1: Yeah, I don't like the 20s analog. I don't like the end of World War II analog as much um, in those days the rest of the developed world or however it was referred to in those days, um, you know, we we're, we're devastated by, by war. Um, it's, it's not an apt analog for me. I, I really do think the 1960s is more appropriate in the, in the fifties, we had a period of very tight bank regulatory policy. We, you know, we had uh, monetary policy that was very similar to what we had in the 2010s in the sixties. For the first time, we had expansive fiscal and monetary policy, and as I said, it caused growth to accelerate for a time. We had administrations that had very ambitious social goals, very progressive agendas. Um, This all resonates with, with what we have today with the Biden administration. LBJ was the consummate operator in the Senate, was able to get things done in the Senate that no one had gotten done, even including Roosevelt in some ways. And so um, who would have thought that Biden would have gotten $1.9 trillion on a snap with 50 Democratic senators only and a very slim majority in the House, but still he got it done. So I like that 60s analog. I think we're building into um, a reflationary and perhaps inflationary period, depending on how policy reacts to it over time. And I think that's the right way to think about it. I I definitely think we're in the beginning of a business cycle. If you look at the way the equity market behaved and rates market for that matter, credit markets, this was classic business cycle activity. Consumer discretionaries outperformed in every cycle since S&P started their sector indices and. Uh, 1989, so did materials, so did financials. The only sector tech did not perform in was the 90s, strangely enough, when they went into their bubble, but they only underperformed very marginally. Small caps underperformed handily. All that stuff was classic business cycle with the defensive sectors underperforming. The sector that had gone down the most, in this case, energy, performed best in the year after the, uh, the market related low. So this looks very early cycle uh, stuff. The question is, do we have another nine or 10 year cycle or not? And that, again, I think you have to look to policy. So from an investor perspective, to me, what's really important about that is if you go back to the last cycle and say, okay, when did we have our setbacks? Even though we had a very tepid recovery, we averaged 4% nominal GDP growth, well below the long post-World War II trend of, call it five and a half. The only serious setbacks we had, were when monetary and or fiscal policy tightened. So the end of QE1, (coughs) pardon me, the end of QE2, which coincided with the whole debt ceiling debate and then Budget Control Act. For me, we need to get a tightening of monetary policy. So our first little mini taper tantrum, which, as I said, is unlikely till the third quarter, or we have to be staring down those tax hikes. Those couldn't happen before next year, even if this first plan gets passed in the third quarter and second plan gets passed in the fourth quarter. We're still talking about next year before we really get those tax hikes. So I think the market is in pretty good shape vis-a-vis that framework that we need some sort of policy tightening to have a serious setback at least for the next quarter. And so, yeah, it's, it's early cycle activity. I think we will start transitioning from just playing the, you know, the cyclical recovery playbook to starting to move into some of these longer term themes. For example, <clears throat> tech not being the massive outperformer this cycle, um, that already started back in August. Tech started to stall out relative to industrials and the other cyclical sectors. So you're seeing some evidence of the secular trends starting to emerge, but um, but it's still early cycle.
0: mm mm-hmm. uh- given that where do you want to have your overweights and and, and in particular, because we have seen quite a a run up um, on a year to date basis. And certainly small caps have um, shown some great performance. They've been a little bit on the weaker side lately, but is there like, is there still opportunity in some of those areas or are you concerned from a valuation perspective or do they grow into their valuations?
1: Yeah, there's a, um, there's a few themes that I would expect to persist through the cycle. I've mentioned a few of them. Um, One is this uh, deglobalization trend, uh, a strong capital and investment cycle, notwithstanding the risk associated with the Biden tax plan. But in the 60s, we had a very strong investment cycle after JFK cut corporate tax rates and and, uh, uh, increased depreciation allowances and the like. In the 90s, we had a very strong cycle after the 86 tax reform. And there were other um, cases for that too, generally um, stable prices and a need to build our capital stock. So I think the capital spending story is going to be pretty solid this cycle. I also think you know that, that globalization trend plays into it. I would also expect the benefits of digitization movement to the cloud to accrue to the users of that technology from the producers of that technology. So that means really building out the industrial internet of things. Uh, using technology to deliver healthcare services. It's already happened in the consumer sector. It should be increasingly evident in the financial sector, whether the big banks get it or it's fintech that gets it is a little unclear as of yet. But for me, then, if you think about those broader trends, as well as a, a recovery in global trade and manufacturing from not just the pandemic, but from the, the manufacturing recession that resulted from Trump's trade war, um, Industrials lines up with almost all of those sectors. Hmm. So that sector, industrials, materials, you may have heard Jeff Curry of Goldman Sachs talking about overinvesting in the new economy and underinvesting in the old economy for the last decade. That's a sounds like a pretty viable thesis to me. So materials, industrials, uh, energy, all this green energy policy is probably going to drive up the price of oil <laughs> over time. Uh, so I like energy as well. I also think that shale has fundamentally changed, uh, it will stabilize the return on invested capital in that sector because it changed the elasticity of supply, made it less of a boom and bust in the, in the final price. Mm-hmm. So those um, cyclical sectors for me are big winners through the cycle. Healthcare is not so much a cyclical sector but could be a beneficiary of finally getting technology innovation adoption in this country and um the uh, the pharmaceutical sector probably some yeah. price uh, controls as a consequence of their performance with the vaccines and the pandemic so those are you know those are the sectors that i think you really should be positioned in and for mm-hmm. me technology is no better than a market weight this cycle but right now, I want to be in the cyclical portions of that um, sector. So I want to be in semis. And um, although software is dreadfully expensive and people worry about the implications of higher rates on valuations, there should be a really strong recovery in software investment as well. Now, comps aren't as easy as they are in some of these other sectors over the next few quarters. Still, you should have very strong software investment Over the next couple of quarters as well so maybe a little less exposure there but i wouldn't be out of the sector
0: and barry just to kind of wrap up the tech talk for one second what about some of the social media names the fang names that are facing antitrust but at the same time especially being at home i think people are even more and more addicted um, to some of these companies and their business models and also of course whether it's the delivery service from amazon or using apple iphones to do zoom meetings or what have you Where do those fit into tech being just a market weight?
1: Yeah, this is a very underappreciated aspect of the Biden administration: is that antitrust policy may very well go through the most significant change that it's gone through in um, forty years. And so prior to that, not late '70s, Robert Bork's consumerism and the Chicago School price theory, um, antitrust enforcement and mergers and acquisitions approval was based on something called structuralism and it was the idea that if you had very large market share vertically integrated market share or just market share in a particular product uh, or area that was reason enough to you know to get antitrust enforcement or antitrust scrutiny that it would eventually lead to higher prices bork and the chicago school changed that methodology to what was known as consumerism or the price theory and the idea that unless the, the lens that you were supposed to view this was whether the consumer was paying a higher price or not. And that price was evidence of whether there was really monopolistic behavior or market power. Well, we're headed back towards structuralism. Um, there's a nominee for the Federal Trade Commission, uh, Lena Khan from Columbia, who wrote a paper about Amazon in 2017 that's a really good read. She goes through the history of this. She is a, um, you know, she's a big antitrust, anti-vertical merger person. Mm-hmm. The Biden administration, where FT, the FTC sued this week to block a vertical merger, Illumina was going to buy a company that they had originally founded. They own 15% in. Uh, there are two candidates Right now for the head of antitrust at the DOJ and the chair of FTC, they're both very strong antitrust structuralists, if you will. And so we may very well wind up with uh, an administration uh, hellbent on, um, you know, breaking up big tech. Now, that'll be a long process like the IBM suits were and that Microsoft suits were. And um, it'll it'll be a struggle. But, you know, it could definitely uh, preoccupy these companies, impair these companies. It was a long time before Microsoft got themselves, you know, back on their feet, so to speak, mm-hmm. and um, moving forward after they spent years fighting off the government on antitrust. So this this antitrust risk is significant. Um, again, these companies have powerful franchises, strong earnings. <laughs> you know, they're not overly expensive by a lot of metrics. So I, I wouldn't be underweight them necessarily yet, but um, I wouldn't be all in on Fang either.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to your point, though, that, you know, we really haven't taken antitrust uh, too seriously for a number of decades. You know, I kind of don't even worry about it too much. But your point in your outlook note uh, is well taken in terms of who might be appointed to the FTC. So I appreciate that. Um, Barry, before we wrap it up, I do want to get your take on um, cryptocurrencies as well as SPACs. Thoughts there on both?
1: Um, sure. On on crypto, um, this is a a little bit esoteric, I suppose. But I touched on some of this a bit earlier, and um, in my '60s analog, the big struggle for <clears throat> the Kennedy and then the Johnson administration for the Fed was: what do they do about the current account? What do they do about the fact that we were the um, it was the dollar gold standard. It originally, the, the pound sterling was supposed to be part of that, but they devalued in the late 50s. We were into the full period of Bretton Woods, and it was a real drag on our domestic agenda. Well, we may find that again, that it is a serious drag. There is a point of view that in order for the rest of the world to function properly, the U.S. needs to run these big current account deficits. It's no longer We are no, no longer running... Uh, energy related current account deficits that produces a lot of excess dollars that the global system can operate utilizing, it's now all about goods. And um, uh, there is very little appetite in this country, as evidenced by Donald Trump's election in 2016, to run massive trade deficits, have our manufacturing capabilities transported or outsourced to the rest of the world. And so it could very well be that some point at some point in this cycle, we really push back on this whole idea of being the world's currency, reserve currency. And in some ways, the fact that we have expansive fiscal and monetary policy simultaneously is a pushback on that. Now, I understand the dollar has been rallying thus far this year. Positioning was very offsides on this early in the year. Uh, additionally, um, Europe is struggling with the pandemic and dissemination of vaccines and the like. But for me, Bitcoin is the canary in the coal mine about this broader, is the US dollar going to be the, the reserve currency 10 years from now thesis? And huh. uh, and I think that's what Bitcoin's about. Now, Bitcoin has some ways to go to be at the core of the global trade system. Um, obviously, you'd have to be able to process far more transactions than you can currently. And, um, you know, it, it, that's why I call it a canary in a coal mine as opposed to yeah. some sort of you know, the center of the next global exchange rate regime. But um, but it's it's interesting nonetheless. And from that perspective, I think you know, keeping your eye on Bitcoin, may having some exposure to Bitcoin probably makes some sense. Um, specs, I don't get. <laughs> <You>
0: know,
1: <laughs> I just don't get it. I don't know why you would give a bunch of money to someone <clears throat> um without any investment in place. It's not even the same as giving money to a a really hot hedge fund manager. At least you're adding to a fund that they already have a track record on. So I, I, mm-hmm. I don't understand, understand SPACs. Um, maybe mm-hmm. maybe part of it is just we made it too tough for companies to come public, and you know that's that's part of it. But um, mm-hmm.
0: I don't know, you know. Yeah, I know. I mean, I was selling them um, at Deutsche Bank back in I don't know. I think it was two thousand four, two thousand five, when they first came out. And I would be, you know, you know, obviously you're supposed to sell them to money managers and my money, my clients, big institutions, and say, why would I buy that? Why would I buy? buy that's my job. Right. <laughs> like, I don't know, but but you're, <laughs> but it is an interesting structural aspect to to companies uh, going public or, or entering the public uh, markets. Um, just just lastly, Barry, uh, you know. Um, when I was talking to you know somebody who I was so respect in the investment business and also business in general, talking about concerns as the market has been as it relates to you know rising rates, putting downward pressure on multiples, um, this person said to me, whatever it will be in terms of you know the Black Swan event, I'm not saying we' it doesn't sound at all like we're in for a Black Swan event. but you know I guess the the question is really, what does concern you? What's your biggest concern out there?
1: Well, um, you know, I, I, I for sure think that um, the massive, easy monetary policy and fiscal policy is is misallocating resources, right? So, you know, I'm constantly talking about policy risks. The labor market, for example, we had a very sharp decline. In continuous jobless, uh, continuing jobless claims in the second half of last year, a steady decline. Then we decided to extend uh, or reinstitute that extra three hundred dollars per week. The gig worker program, program for um, independent contractors, never existed before. We extended that further. These are, are programs that have never existed. They could slow the recovery in the labor market fairly significantly. Going back to last cycle you know, we extend unemployment benefits in every recession. Well, last cycle, we extended them to 99 weeks and kept rolling that until the end of 2013. It turns out 2014 was the strongest year of the entire labor market recovery, the fifth year of the cycle, not the first, right? So, you know, policy can definitely misallocate resources. It impairs creative destruction. Mm. You know, we bailed out a lot of companies that not clear they really should have been bailed out. Yeah, the pandemic was nobody's fault. There's an argument to, you know, to to um, create those benefits. But in a lot of ways, then that facilitated bad public policy and lockdowns, non-pharmaceutical interventions that shouldn't have gone on as long as they did. So, so I worry, you know, I worry that we have um, impaired productivity growth, capital spending, uh, and misallocated resources. And we'll have more of these little Mm -hmm. blow-ups. Again, it's so early in the business cycle, it would be highly unusual to have a serious market setback or to go straight back into recession. This is not the early 80s where we had an intractable problem like inflation that needed very draconian actions to resolve. This is, you know, this is different. Um, so I, I do think that um the economy will be fine for now. Um, and I think that um all that liquidity, the unintended c- uh costs of all that liquidity will not be apparent, you know, for at least a year or two. And as I've said, I think inflation is coming, but reflation is good for markets, inflation is bad, and it's too early for mm-hmm. true inflation. So
0: And where does the pandemic fit into this as well? Because it seems though the United States is making some great progress. The UK has been making some great progress. Um, Canada, less than 10% of our population has their first shot. So there's also the view that, you know, can the United States go at it alone in terms of seeing some great economic growth when, you know, we have so many other areas in the world um, suffering and and really, you know, I mean, our growth here is 0.7%, 0.5%.
1: Right. Um, well, the answer is yes. Um, this is a fairly closed economy. This is an economy that runs massive trade deficits. It's a you know current account deficit country, not a current account surplus country. So where I think people have some of this story wrong is in thinking that the that, uh, mercantilists, economies number two, three and four in the world, uh China, Japan, and Germany are going to be big beneficiaries of this global recovery, and they're not. As I said earlier when we talked about deglobalization, globalization they're going to get a little brief bounce, and then they're going to have a real problem to deal with, which is they need to restructure their economies. Germany needs to change their tax code and try and spur you know, domestic innovation and move away from selling capital goods to China. So those countries definitely have you know, an, an ongoing issue. Um, as far as that, you know, the pandemic itself and the dissemination of vaccines, I presume much like early in the year, people were worried about that here. It cleaned up pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. The Europeans will get their act together. You guys, I'm sure will as well. I realize it's a national health system, so it's not going to be super efficient, but you know, you guys will, That's you what you guys will get, you'll get them out there. And and listen, there's, there's another piece of this when, you know, Anthony Fauci talks about needing to have 80% of the population vaccinated. It's just not true. Um, you know, you, you do have immune antibody immunity. You have T cell resistance. Um, by most accounts, we've got close to 50% of the population with some form of natural resistance to the virus as it stands. Hmm. And, and then you pile vaccines on top of that. And you'll find that the the curves will fall really sharply, um, particularly as the weather gets better in the northern hemisphere. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm, I'm I'm less concerned about that. I don't really think the pandemic has been a serious market factor um, since the fall wave in Europe was sort of the last point when it really impacted the markets in a meaningful way. So mm-hmm. um, I've been looking past that for a long time, but I looked, you know, uh, I looked past it at the lows, too, because there's a lot of history around this. And, um, you know, the market was not going down in 1918 during the Spanish flu it was going up. Um, we had already entered into the war and had our sell-off. And so, um, -hmm. it's awful, you know, it's an awful thing, but, Mm
0: -hmm. you know, as an
1: investor, you have to separate yourself from that. And, and look at um, what's likely to occur so
0: and that was definitely the right call um i want to pick up on something that you know we've heard so much from you today in this uh longer format conversation which i so appreciate and but you did this on our seven eight ten minute interviews as well you reference history a lot barry and i think more so than so many people i i speak with i mean gary schilling uh certainly references history a lot as well but what, what what's your um desire in that? Or, or why, why is that your, your reference and in, in your frame?
1: Oh, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a lifelong love. I was, I was pouring through James Minchner novels when I was, you know, a teenager and James Clavel books, Shogun type and I've always loved history. I had a minor in it in college. And in addition to a minor in finance and a major in, in economics. And I've just always focused on financial history, economic history. Uh, I'm working through Alan Meltzer's history of the Federal Reserve right now. I'm in mm. 1966. To me, it just really helps, you know, frame um, these, these dynamics. They're all different to an extent, right? But there is so much information to be gleaned because human nature repeats. And, you know, we go through these uh, presidential cycles and swings from left to right. And, you um, you know, monetary policy evolves, but, you know, in the early 60s, this country moved from being focused on inflation to being primarily focused on unemployment, just like we are today. Mm -hmm. So there's so much to be gleaned from that, if you understand it and appreciate it, and it just helps you set down a roadmap for thinking about what's likely to occur. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm
0: And to your point, being able to look through um and, and referencing, of course, that the market was actually up in, in 20 in, in the 18s, 1918.
1: So right. I, I, I uh, refused to use the word unprecedented in about April of last year, right? And because in a lot of ways what happened last year was not unprecedented, we've had at least ver- three very significant stop start you know, sudden stop recessions. I think that's what Muhammad Al-Arian called them. We had one in 58. In the midst of a pandemic, we had one in 1980 when Carter put credit controls on the economy. That Iraq War was something of a sudden stop recession, so huh. there there was precedent. Um, you just had to look deeply at it, and um, and then it it helped you, you know, helped me a lot frame out the um, the magnitude of the risk back in in March a year ago, and uh-huh. how the recovery was like to, likely to unfold. And uh-huh. so far, so good
0: absolutely um Barry we'll leave it there thank you so much for your time uh your knowledge the background that you you've shared with us today it's incredible um definitely a lot for for people to think about and, and hopefully I you know they, they can understand it uh even more so with with a little bit more time that that we have to to be able to explain kind of the background
1: oh absolutely and um, by all means you know follow me on Twitter sign up for my um, uh, Research Ironsides Macro. Substack. and um, uh, like I uh, like the title of my research. It's never different this time. So.
0: <laughs> I know. I saw that. I love it. Uh, and and I'll make sure everybody has your information as well. So um, I know you, of course, have a big institutional following, and and I'm sure some uh, some more individual uh, investors. But also importantly, well, we'll go back to the top. Family offices. Some of them right. are very big around the world. So we'll, we'll make sure you, everybody's got your information. So, uh, Barry, thanks again. Enjoy Vale, Colorado.
1: Thanks, Catherine.
0: Okay, talk to you soon. Bye.